Hi everyone, I'm Glenn Gao, CEO of Crimson Marketing. Welcome to Moneyball for Marketing, where we talk about the incredible changes happening in marketing organizations around big data and marketing technology. We feature marketing technology insights from the top marketers in the world. The reference to Moneyball is from the story of how the Oakland A's baseball team were able to win and win and win because they figured out how to use data and technology to their advantage. If you'd like to learn about how to use big data and marketing technology and marketing to help you win, visit us at crimsonmarketing.com or email us at info at crimsonmarketing.com. And now on to our podcast. Today, I am very pleased to welcome Brian King. Brian is the Senior Vice President of Marketing at CycleGear. Brian oversees marketing, which includes advertising, sponsorships, PR, creative, social media, and strategic partnerships. In addition, he manages CRM and catalog for demand generation online and in store. So how does Cycle Gear describe themselves? Cycle Gear is the largest and fastest growing retailer of motorcycle parts and apparel in America. So Brian, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Hey, thanks, Glenn. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You and I were talking earlier about something that really fascinates me where some companies commit themselves to repeating past promotional activity because of the way they measure themselves, not necessarily because of the fact that it works. Tell us that that story. Well, I think it's more than some. I think the vast majority of companies do, Glenn. Um, It really comes down to the fact that we all build our previous financial performance um, into into our promotional uh, plans, right? So every year we've got to do better than the year before, and we might look at it on a daily basis, a weekly basis, or or, monthly or quarterly. And we're always trying to lap our previous performance. So you you only get incrementality when you do better than the year before. Right. So you can be running promotions um, in any given time frame and it it can make a significant contribution to the top line and the bottom line of your business yet yet give you an underperformance in terms of return on investment. So the typical case, the big one that everybody probably recognizes is that in grocery, you can be doing circulars or freestanding inserts and uh, when you measure them um, through something like media mix modeling, you see that you're only getting 80 cents back in revenue for every dollar that you spend. Now, uh, let, let, me, let me stop you there. So there, there are two things that jump out in what you just said. One is I would like you to explain for the audience media mix modeling. Just give a definition of that. And then help us understand how anybody can be running a negative ROI campaign. Yeah. Okay. So media mix modeling, um, it's, it's a tried and true uh, methodology developed for CPG companies uh, back uh, because they were spending so much, because they spend so much money. That's consumer like packaged goods yeah. for listeners. Correct. Yep. Yep. So think your, your Kellogg's and uh, General Mills and all these sorts of guys. Um, so what they do or what you do is you take multiple years of sales history and you do it over multiple geographies, and you overlay on top of that all of the promotional activity that you have going on. 
And what this does is passes out the impacts and the synergies of all the different promotional activity. It can be pricing, it can be TV, it could be direct mail, it could be emails, all of those different things that are going on in your markets at different times and can pass out the contribution of each of those. Um, so, um, you know, you, your, your baseline might be that you have zero activity in a given market in a given day or a given week or a given month. And that would be compared to, um, to other markets at that same time that have different activity going on, going on, right? So the combinations over an extended period of time and their relationship to sales performance um, is how you identify the contribution of the different media. Got it. Got it. Um, so this is a sense, uh, a way of doing marketing attribution. Correct. Yeah. It's called top-down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we could get into a whole conversation about that as well, Glenn. But anyway, it's so, so it's a way of seeing uh, how different activities give you in terms of the dollar contribution, the margin contribution, and then your return on investment because you, Perfect. you also provide all the, you know, the costs of those. Right, so, so, so that brings us to the, uh, the ROI conversation. Tell yeah. us what's going on there. So um, what it also shows you is what the natural baseline of the business is. So within it, it knows within these models, you also provide store opening, store closings, um, and, and you can see uh, what is going on in the economy. They often use Federal Reserve information around um, uh, inflation, employment, and all of these other things. So it can separate out, first of all, what the, what the, what the economy is doing to your business, what your footprint is doing to your business, and then on top of that, what marketing, all of the marketing and merchandising activities are doing to your business. Very powerful. So, for example, you could have a company that is doing, a, um, let's say, a billion dollars in business, and 15% of that might be contributed through all of your marketing and promotional activity, let's say. Within that, then, you can look at how much you spend on all of those promotions or on those media and see how much you get back. So... You know, grocery has been doing circulars and freestanding inserts for decades. They know that when they stop doing those or completely cut them off, traffic dies or, or, or slows down and you can have a negative comp to your previous year's promotion. Right. That, though, does not mean to say it's, it's given you a positive return on investment. You actually see through these models that it could be something like 80 cents on the dollar. But if you don't, but, but these circulars and freestanding inserts account for, let's say, half of that 15% or even more uh, that marketing is contributing. And therefore, that's a, if you turn it all off, that could be a 7.5% uh, negative comp that you're going to experience unless you can find ways of replacing it at the same scale that it's delivering the sales and margin. Right, and that really is the key, is finding something to replace it. And maybe that's really where, in your example, the grocers are struggling. Correct. And, and I use grocers because it's the most obvious example. Um, I've seen it in other retail as well. I've seen it in specialty as well. Um, and uh, you have to be uh, more numerate and smarter uh, to f and test alternatives to be able to come up with those uh, replacement strategies. All right, good. And talk to us about the barriers to making these changes 
Yeah, so a couple of them. Finding uh, programs that scale. So a lot of people think that you can, you know, digital has a much stronger return on investment than old-fashioned media um, like direct mail and TV. The, the thing is, they don't necessarily have the same impact and get people off their off their couch and into your into your store or or, or online. Right. Um, this actually is more applicable to bricks and mortar than far more applicable to bricks and mortar than it is to online. But my experience, for example, is is that I'll get four to five times stronger return on investment from email programs but that I will get nowhere near the same scale as I will out of a direct mail or a catalog program. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I could only maybe get $1.20 or $1.50 for every dollar I spend on direct mail. Um, but I can, if I have a large enough database, say in one case 25 million active customers, I could deliver $70 million in contribution to sales for the business Whereas with an active email base of say only five million, um, and uh, and you know much lower response rates, there was no way I could contribute more than like five or six million dollars uh, to the business through all of those email pro all of those email contacts. Got it. So what what kind of um, return would you see? I think you said one twenty to one fifty on direct mail. What kind yeah. of return would you see on email? In this case, it would seem more like four fifty to five dollars. Okay, well, that's a that's a huge argument. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, that's yeah. such a significant difference. Let me ask you about that though. Some some companies that we work with would say, "Hey, if it's four fifty return, I'm just going to put all my dollars in that basket." Yeah. How, how do you look at, at 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 that approach as opposed to even experimenting with something where you like direct mail, where you're going to you know you're going to get a lower ROI. Would, yeah. would you consider that or, or, or do you do that? And if so, why? Yeah, yeah absolutely. You do both. Um, so we, you know, we maxed out the volume of direct mail that we could send. Ah. We, we just physically could not send anymore. Um, and you get to the point where you're spamming people and your, um, and your uh, open rates go down, your unsubs go up. Um, and even if your unsub rate stays the same, if you're increasing the volume, you are actually uh, incrementally making your unsub volume um, increase. Right. So then you go and say, how can I find smarter ways of doing this? And that's what I'm doing right now um, is looking to find ways of improving personalization uh, within the email programs and looking at ways of measuring a better cadence uh, of contact with customers. And, and, and if I may, Brian, um, I know the audience is interested in personalization. It's a very hot topic. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing there. Yeah, so um, in the motorcycle business, you've essentially got five ride types. People who ride off-road bikes, people who ride touring, cruises, and what we call street. And I won't get into all the details. But ride types is something that's significant. If I send somebody who only rides an off-road bike information about street bikes, um, it's probably less relevant to them. Right. Uh, however, uh, people have combinations of rides and they change the kinds of rides that they have. So we have to keep on top of primarily all of the transactional data that we have on what type, what kind of product we think that they're riding. Mm -hmm. We should also, and we don't just yet, be capturing make, make model year, which can give us much more uh, relevant information. But from that, we have promotions in all of these categories all of the time. 
And so what we're doing is working with a, a, a pretty uh, relatively small vendor um, that has a uh, personalization platform that will pass out um, past transactional behavior, their online behavior on our site, what they're browsing on and what they're looking at to identify uh, what, what promotions are going to be most relevant uh, to them. We have like 200 items on promotion at any given time. So then what we would do, what we are planning on doing is running an A-B test where we include uh, groups that look the same in our standard program versus groups of customers that actually have the content personalized and dropped into the email based on their ride type and what we think they're interested in buying at a given point in time. So that's going to take probably three months before we start to get a read on it and potentially six months before we have that honed. Um, we're actually using um, uh, machine learning in the process so that we're not predetermining with business rules what items people will be presented with, but rather what the relationships are between um, people's transactions and what we have available or what they've been presented in those emails for that to improve over time. That, um, I love the concept of machine learning using data. And let me ask you, I'm going to imagine this is what you're doing. You're you're, you have some hypotheses going in, but you're going to let the actual behavior of buyers tell you what are the attributes of a buyer that seem to respond to particular types of offers. And, and that's really going to be the answer to the question of what's working and what's not working. Did I get that right? Yeah, correct. Um, and the answer to what's working and not working is we're doing it at the macro scale, right? So are we getting better... Uh, revenue generation, margin generation from one type of treatment versus another. So it's going to be measured. It's just it's nearly impossible to measure it at the uh, at the individual level. You have to do it in aggregate. The other thing I'd like to point out though is we're really trying to skip from doing segmentation down to doing individual contacts. The technology is there to allow us to do it. And if we put business rules in place, we can... We, we could muck up or predetermine, um, we, we could put barriers into presenting the right information to the right customers. Um, so, so we're really doing a segmentation of one. So that that's, sounds really hard to do. So tell us a little bit about some of the technologies you might be using or the approaches you're using and, and, and how, how can so you get to that level? So we're working with a company called MoreCloud. MoreCloud, yeah. okay. And, so and, yeah, yeah tell us a little bit about how that works because I, I I I think a lot of companies get pretty good at segmentation, uh, but then they get overwhelmed when they start to have too many segments. And when you get to a segment of one, you're you're talking of millions now. Yeah, yeah exactly. You're absolutely right. Segmentation can be overwhelming, and what you're always doing is you're 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 being uh, Segmentation is a way to try and get you away from the averages of the total mass, right? Right. So you start to segment to say there are some variables that are different for this group of customers versus that group of customers. But within any segmentation, you're then working with an average of a group of customers, and we use segmentation at levels typically three, five, seven segments are, are pretty common um, because our, we can get our minds around that. Right. Uh, and we can manage that, uh, and we can target based on that. However, if we skip that level and say, um, use the algorithms to tell us what people or individuals are responding to, 
um, look at their personal buying behavior versus the buying behavior of the group um, and uh, and then present what that individual is interested in. Now, it's, it's, you have to take a leap of faith to do that, to say, can these technologies, um, can these technologies uh, do what we think you know they're doing and you you can't you can't explain it simply uh to your executives or to anybody um so that's why we we do this as an a b test um right so that we can say hey i'm not going to explain to you what's going on at the individual level or what's going on at the segment level but i can say you show you in total when i treat people one way with this series of campaigns versus another way with this other methodology this is the difference in my total performance and um, what fascinates me about this is you can gain a competitive advantage for a couple of reasons. One is I think you're somewhat smaller than some of the big yeah. retailers, number one. Yeah. So you can you can be more nimble. But more importantly, you've created a culture of experimentation and innovation. So you're you're willing to work with vendors who can manage this big data in a way that, that helps you learn about what's working and what's not working. Yeah. And, yeah. and that could give you a really a huge leg up over the big competitors. Yeah, so we're, we're, we're big in our market, but we're small as a business. Yeah. Um, what, this, what this does is also the way, it's, the way we've structured the business, it's a pay for performance engagement. So we don't take a huge amount of risk apart from the time that we invest in this. Right. Uh, and uh, you know, and it's self-funding because um, if we get the marginless lift that we're looking for, and generate the incremental trips that we're looking for, that will generate the cash that will that will pay for the program. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, but it means that we're probably compared to a, a larger organisation, we're taking a bit of a flyer on on this, you know, because we don't have to kick out any other vendors. We can keep our current programs going. Um, and you know, it's, it's a, it's an opportunity with upside. Um, that's right. Uh, the way, the way we've structured it is, is that, uh, you know, a, a, a supplemental customer database has been built in the cloud that connects to a platform that already exists with this vendor. Um, and then they're basically porting the information back to us. Well, actually we're in two ways, one, to to help us with catalog targeting, and two, to help us with this email personalization are the two key areas that we're working on. And I'm going to ask you a question we didn't talk about earlier, but it has to do with lookalike modeling. And yeah. I, I love the concept because if you can test and test and test what works and what doesn't work inside your current database of customers, then you should be able to build the perfect profile of what's going to work when you go find someone who isn't yet a customer and know exactly what kind of promotion is going to appeal to them. Tell us if you're able to do that yet. We're not concentrating on that yet. Um, where we would go with that, though, would be um, digitally looking to digitally recruit people. Right. Because um, they would be having those online browsing behaviors that look like our best customers. Um, Definitely, lookalikes are where you want to go. Right, so three percent of the population own a motorcycle. Um, it's really, really hard to find our customers, and it's very expensive to recruit them. Right. So, um, we're trying to get 
we're, what we're trying to do right now is get better value out of our existing base where we know people are riders because they've proven it by shopping with us. Um, and then and then the next step is looking at, at lookalikes online. But again, I hesitated earlier because of the potential scale um, of that. We will still have to do traditional prospecting uh, where we go out and rent lists uh, or where we use friend get a friend programs to uh, to generate new customer acquisition. Fantastic. Well, I'm impressed with uh, what you're doing and your drive toward personalization, your drive toward a market of or segment of one that's mm-hmm. uh, kind of kind of nirvana. And if you can pull that off, I'll be very, very impressed. So, <laughs> so uh, Brian, we're just about out of time. So okay. I just want to thank you for sharing some of the things you're doing and uh, helping us understand some of the complexities and pulling off this this uh, this focus on ROI, personalization and segmentation and um, I've really learned a lot. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Thanks, Glenn. All right, Brian. Talk to you soon. Bye. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes and tell your friends about us. You can also go to our website, crimsonmarketing.com, and sign up for our free monthly newsletter featuring the very best of our marketing insights, featured Moneyball for Marketing podcasts, and one of our favorite features called bad marketing or email me at info at crimsonmarketing.com thanks for listening to moneyball for marketing from crimson marketing have a great week and let us know if we can help you in any way